0: Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is the one who created all things and holds all things together. He is the firstborn from the dead, bringing in the new creation. He has established a kingdom because he is the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. His kingdom is a a big, it's a present reality. It is a big deal. He's putting things that are broken back together. That's big stuff. Jesus is a... Big Savior who has done big things, and his kingdom is making a huge impact on the world. And so, Paul begins chapter 3, where we find ourselves transitioning from talking about the preeminence of Christ to the practical implications, the practical application. The big king, he kind of goes into this. Look, he's a big king with a big kingdom. And he should make a big difference on our lives. But this is where he goes after he said that. That big king with a big kingdom making a big difference. He then goes immediately into the most ordinary relationships that we have. The most ordinary, common, everyday aspects of our lives particularly here at the end of chapter 3 as Chad did last week in the family relationships of husbands to wives and children to parents and parents to children all these are the this is just the environment this is the most absolutely ordinary part of our lives and then here in 22 and onward he then begins to deal with employee employer relationships This is what it means to belong to a big king with a big kingdom that's making a big difference. He's making those big things in the most ordinary parts of our lives. Jesus isn't first making people who are amazing at Instagrammable moments or things that you can place on Facebook. He's, he's, He's making the biggest difference in the things that you do day in and day out. And as Christians, we need to think about big things, but we need to think about making those big things important in the most ordinary parts of our lives, lest we miss the fact that this is an upside-down kingdom where the weak and the vulnerable and the average find a home seeing Jesus make a difference in the weak and vulnerable average parts of our lives. And so after Paul talks about the relationship between members of the household in 18 through 21, he then turns to the worker and employee relationship. Now this needs to be said. If you've got um, an older translation, um, you'll find that the word that we translate as bondservants throughout this passage, verse 22, the beginning, bondservants, obey your uh, in everything, those who are your earthly masters, it's really that bond is unfortunately, it's really a tamed down word, right? Paul uh, had a plethora, he had six words that he could use in the Greek language for describing a master or an employer-servant relationship. Six different words that, in, that imply servanthood. Instead, what he does is he goes to the the most weak, vulnerable, and oppressed of that group—it really should be translated "slaves." Actually, the ESV tra- changed its its translation philosophy. In the original, it was slaves, and then they kind of tamed it down and went to bond servants. But the Greek word is doulos. It was the most um, the, the most disregarded position in Roman culture. A slave in a Roman culture was Um, had no legal rights, they had no access to the justice system, they were owned by another, and it was a fabric, part of the fabric of the ancient world. Slavery meant that his or her labor was owned by someone else, their life was owned by someone else, their Every aspect of their daily life was controlled by a master. It needs to be said, slavery and then and now was sinful, horrendous, demeaning. And yet Paul understood, this is just a masterful way of seeing the gospel come in and change things. Paul understood that the people of Jesus... Still had to live, learn to live in a world that had sinful and broken institutions, and so, and so he comes and he addresses them. We'll come back to the way the gospel transforms relationships between slave and master, but for now we have to see how this passage speaks to us in our non-slave relationships because this is not where we find ourselves. We don't find ourselves in an economy where there are slaves and masters anymore. Thankfully, God in, in His sovereignty has done away with this he's fixed the corruption of slavery in our current context although you need to know that slavery is bigger today than it ever has been in the history of the world there are numerically more slaves in the world today it's not it's still a fat part of the fabric and still needs to be eradicated in many parts of the world and where the church has been the strongest and most faithful to its to God's word it has found itself dealing with eradicating slavery where the church has been weak and has conformed to the culture it's not done that it needs to that's an aside it's not even in my notes it's free for you today the modern correlation for us though because we don't live in a slave and master culture is the employee employer relationship this is where we do live this is an important part of our, our lives. And so if we're going to understand why Paul is addressing the employee-employer relationship, we need to rethink the way we think about work. We really need to develop a biblical theology of work. Just like the household relationships, the employee-employer relationship is an important, most basic, common relationship relationship that we have. And so if we're going to develop a theology of work, we have to go back to our Old Testament reading from Genesis chapter one. God creates this beautiful garden kingdom, right? And the kingdom there in Eden was supposed to grow and cover the whole earth. How was that supposed to happen? God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, I've got a career for you. I've got a job for you. Work the ground and take the raw materials that you find in my garden kingdom and make it fruitful and multiply until what is there expands throughout the whole earth. And the whole earth is filled with my kingdom. Be fruitful. Multiply. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. To be the image of God means you and I were created for work. Not a lesser thing that we do. In fact, our fathers in the faith often referred to our careers with this important word. And I think we need to recover it. Vocation. It's the Latin for calling. Vocation is a thing that God has called you to. Your little garden in this world. Whether, Whether you're calling, your vocation means your garden is to put out fires as a fireman or so you keep destruction and death at bay or in the medical field your little garden is to nurture a sick person back to health and tend to their families or your garden is a justice system as a lawyer and so you tend it so that it brings about flourishing in our society or whether your garden is as a factory line worker creating a little widget putting it on a device. So that that can be used for the greater good of our society. You were called to work. We were called to work. In God's economy then, the kingdom, to serve in the kingdom means and your career is the, the little field that God has given you. It's not that one day you need to get out of that and find some way to make a kingdom impact on the world. The kingdom should be impacting your everyday life, particularly in your vocation. And so in God's economy, what we do on Sunday isn't the spiritual stuff. And what we do on Monday is the secular stuff. It's the unimportant stuff. Sunday is meant to prepare us for the rest of the work week. This is embodied in the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is simply put, work six days commanded by God. If you're going to obey me, you need to find a career and carry it out to my glory. And then one day out of the week, set aside for rest. I'm giving it to you as a, a gift. And the gospel in that framework then should be impacting the way we work by reframing us and giving us a sense of identity, of who we are. Because we're always functioning out of our identity. Right? And you don't want to build your sense of worth on your career because it's, it's just bound to disappoint you. Hey, here's the reality like, whatever you do, the curse of sin has affected our callings, our vocation. And so, no matter what you do, you're going to be frustrated with it. God, when He cursed Adam, didn't say, You're not going to work anymore. He said, Your work is going to produce thorns and thistles. Like, it's still going to produce good things, but there's going to be levels of frustration. You don't want to build your sense of worth. On your career, because it is going to be frustrating. You're not going to get the advancements that you want. You're not going to get the recognition that you want. It will always disappoint. And so we work out of the gospel. Verse 17 this takes us back. You've got your Bibles. It's not printed in your worship guide. So, verse 17 whatever you do. In word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so this is the first thing, like to get there. If you're going to do everything in the name to the glory of God with thanks, that includes your career, your vocation, your calling. The first thing Paul does is drives us back into this, this new identity that we have. And Paul just levels the playing field here. You need to understand what he's doing. This is the way the gospel is subversive. It levels the playing field. Right? The no longer tying our sense of worth to our vocation, but our sense of worth is tied to the new identity that we have in Christ, verse 11. In, in Christ here, in Christ's church... There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Right? In the Roman world, the masters were the important people, and the slaves were the reject in Jesus. And Paul is saying, not in Christ's kingdom. Christ is in all. That's who you are. Christ in you. You in Christ. What's true about him is true about him. You, and he's completely undercutting the whole economy of slaves. Slaves, remember that you're working for Christ. And if you're mistreated because he's in you, he will defend you. And to masters, masters, remember that you are a slave to Christ who is your master, yourself. Don't forget this completely, he says, levels the playing field. And the gospel comes in, it gives us this weird new identity dynamic. One of which I think we like, one of which we don't. And that new identity is exalted slave. Exalted because in Christ you've been raised to new life, seated with the king. In the heavenly places, your life is hidden with Christ and God verse 3 of chapter 3 and when Christ appears you will appear with him in glory you're exalted this is your new identity where are you now you're in Columbia Tennessee and seated with Christ in the heavenly places what's true about him is true about you but the other identity that's glorious stuff like that makes your heart sing The, the other identity is slave Have this mind amongst you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who do not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but considered, who took the form of a slave, servant, doula, slave, even to the point of death, even to death on a cross. We love the language of redemption. You hear us use it a lot. That's slave language. See, what redemption is, the language of buying and selling, particularly in the slave market. Jesus went to the slave market where sin and Satan had us in their bondage. And his awful masters were making us live lives of destruction, of self-destruction and other destruction. He went into the slave market and with the price of his blood, he shed it to redeem us out and that makes us slaves of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. You are not your own because you were bought with a price. Of all the titles and privileges the apostles could grab for themselves, then many to choose from, sons of God, saints, apostles... Right? They were the authorized, sent ones. The one most, I was struck by this this week, the one most frequent title that they used was slave. Second Peter 1 1. Peter, a slave and apostle of Christ. Paul, Philippians 1 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ to the saints in Christ in Philippi. Romans 1 1. Paul is slave. Of Christ, James, one one again. Notice that all of these are introductory statements. James, Jesus' half brother—that's a pretty big title to claim for yourself. But this is not how he introduces himself. James, a slave of God and the master of Jesus Christ. Jude, again, probably a half brother of Jesus, could grab that as his title. Do you know who my brother is? Like how many times, like little kids have said that on the playground. Do you know who my brother is? Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, John. John who laid his head against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. John one. the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his slaves the things that must soon take place. He has made it known by sending his angel to his slave, John. In fact, the slave metaphor is picked up repeatedly as the means of address and title given to the people of God in the book of Revelation. This is written, if you don't understand slavery in Christ, you won't understand the book of Revelation. John MacArthur puts it this way. When someone, when you give somebody the gospel, you're saying to them, I would invite you to become a slave of Jesus Christ. I would like to invite you to give up your independence, give up your freedom, submit yourself to an alien will, abandon all your rights, be owned and controlled by the Lord. And so the question in your career, that mindset, that's our identity, exalted slave. The mindset in your vocation, Paul's goes like this. Your question should be, my master, I'm your slave. I know you will intend well for me. You set me free from the mastery of sin and Satan, and I am thriving in your household. And so, my master, I'm your slave. How do you want me to serve in my particular vocation? Now that Paul's leveled the playing field, he gives the answer to that question in five instructions. Verse 22, here's how your master Jesus wants you to serve as his slave in your particular vocation. Here's how you respond to your employer. Verse 22, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Right? Obedience to your employer pleases Jesus who was obedient to his father. With joy, even unto death, he's, he's modeled obedience and, and raised it up, right? Where the world says obedience and subservience is a menial thing. It, it shows that you have no worth. Jesus is upside down kingdom, obey your earthly masters. Obedience, submission is the way of the gospel in everything. What they ask you to do, here's a little asterisk by it. If they ask you to commit sin, say no. If they ask you to do something that you just don't like, say yes with joy and service unto your master, Jesus. Now be careful, verse 22, again. Work obediently, but not just outward obedience. You have to work on your heart in this. Verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but sincerity of heart. Your goal can't be obedience just to make your boss happy. He or she may or may not find you pleasing. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, your master is fully pleased with you. He's given you his status as son in God's household. Therefore, therefore, give up the temptation to work just towards recognition right? don't, don't just find your career like I'm trying to climb the ladder I'm trying to get a raise I'm trying to get my boss happy with me so I can advance this is where ambition corrupts vocation Jesus has called you if he wants you to advance he'll open that door he'll make it possible he'll make it happen if he doesn't he will leave you where you're at And ambition often is just a subtle form of idolatry and unbelief. It says, I want to take my career into my own hands. And it makes vocation serve me rather than me serving Jesus in my vocation. So put it away. Not for eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Third, fearing the Lord. The end of verse 22. Here's what we mean by, I think, by fearing the Lord with a sense that Jesus is governing all of this. Not only has he got his eye on you, but as the one who governs all the your. Uh, work that you're doing in your vocation he's the one who takes broken things and makes them healthy he's the one who takes weak things and makes them display his redemptive power and so when your work is done unto the lord in fear of him recognizing that this is what he does he takes he takes little things and makes them good there's nothing more frustrating in work than feeling like this is just meaningless Whatever I'm doing today, it's like this form I'm filling out, report I've got to get done. No one cares. No one watches. Not only does Jesus watch, he cares. And he takes little, ordinary things and makes them produce good for this world. Feeble efforts he uses to create beauty and redemption. And so you've got to see this as well as, as work as an extension of love for neighbor. Right? Your vocation, your calling is one of the ways you serve your neighbor. When the farmer works the ground and grows food that ends up on your table, his neighbor gets to enjoy creation. That's love for neighbor. I'm putting something beautiful into the world, something necessary. I'm serving my neighbor. When the factory worker is, is just hanging a door on a car That car is going to be pleasure to your neighbor one day and allow your neighbor to move sick relatives to the the hospital or groceries to their home or their children to sporting events. Jesus is the great multiplier and he takes feeble things, small things, and uses them for good. One author, Martin Luther, was sort of the master of this doctrine of vocation. Martin Luther... One author commenting on this makes this point. In his vocation, man does works which affect the well-being of others. So for for so God has made all offices. Notice what he's just doing. He's like, This is this thing that I do is not more spiritual than the thing that you do. This is your calling, is an office in this world, and so. God has made all these offices through this work in man's offices. God's creative work goes forward and that creative work is love. A profusion of good gifts with persons as his hands or co-workers. God gives gifts through the earthly vocations towards man's life on earth food through farmers, fishermen, hunters, external peace through princes, judges, and orderly powers, knowledge and education through teachers and parents, etc. And here's the thing. It takes all kinds of people doing all kinds of work to make this world a better, good, beautiful place. And God has called you into that wherever it is. So do it for fear of the Lord. Now, verse 23. Work with all your heart. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, literally, heartily, literally means with your soul, that deep, passionate center of your being. You could say, Paul say it this way, put everything you have into your work because everything that you are belongs to Jesus Christ. Don't half-heart it. A menial task is transformed by glory of the person who gave it to you. No matter how menial it is, if I ask you to take a, a letter to the mailbox, you're like, well, can't you do that yourself? You're like, you get frustrated. If the president asks you to take a letter to the mailbox, you would find yourself singing with praise at the great opportunity. The, the menial task is transformed by the glory of the one it gave to you. Work with all your heart. Unto the Lord. My college roommate had one of those jobs that you dread coming out of college. He, uh, his job was to go from bathroom to bathroom to bathroom installing air fresheners, right? It's not what you dreamt when you're going through four years and tens of thousands of dollars doing with your life. And this is what he said. He says, this is dignified work. Because the king gave it to me because let's be honest it's kind of necessary some perspective that allows you to put all your heart into all that you do (laughs) lastly well let me read this quote Uh, Helen Keller said this I long to accomplish a great and noble task but my chief duty is to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble and they are great and noble here's the answer because Jesus gave them to you to do Lastly, and this needs to be said, verse 1 of chapter 4. It's interesting, by the way, that he spends all of this time from 22 through 25 referring or giving instructions to slaves. The gospel often came to the weakest, most vulnerable people in society. And so he elevates them and instructs them. And he's like, also, by the way, because the gospel levels the playing field, masters, watch out. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel turns the typical employee-employer relationship upside down. Right? This is Paul's way of transforming the structures, the sinful structures of society. Rather than attempting to, to, to dismantle the system of slavery, he just completely undermines it. Masters, guess what? You ain't all that you think you are. In Christ, the master, is the slave. He's the slave of Jesus He's going to be held accountable for the way he treats those who are under him. That's the new economy in the church. Where the slave had no standing in the Roman culture. In the Roman culture, the slave had no access to the justice system. No property he could own. He was Someone stole a slave. He had no recourse. But in Christ's kingdom, his master had to give justice and equity to those who are under him. Calvin said this. I'm the master, but not in a tyrannical way. He's kind of commenting on this verse. I'm the master, but not on the condition that I but on the condition I'm also a brother. I'm the master, but there's a common master in heaven for both you and me and those who are under me. We are all one family. And this is the way the gospel just turns. If you're an employer, you need to get this. The gospel's turned this upside down for you if you belong to Jesus Christ. Like putting on the shirt the wrong way. And Jesus is like, oh, like, like, turn it or flip it back inside. You got your shirt on, inside out and backwards. Fix it. And he turns this employer relationship around. If you are an employer, your employees do not exist simply to advance your business and to put dollars in your pocket. Rather, you exist as an employer in service to them. This is the way of the gospel. Look at your master in heaven who did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped but humbled himself in the form of a slave. He worked so that you could prosper. His kingdom is where he uses all of his resources to service to his slaves. Now if you're an employer turn it upside down and think I'm I'm a steward of this person. I've got to figure out how to advance their career, how to invest in them so that they thrive. They should prosper under my care. I should treat them with justice, paying them what they deserve, equity, paying them fairly regardless of gender because Jesus levels the playing field. Americans love to say things like, follow your passion and pursue your dreams. Do what you love to do. But work doesn't work like that. Your vocation can't bear that kind of weight. It can't be the engine that drives your life. And this is what researchers from Stanford University found. They found that following your passions is likely to lead to overly limited pursuits, inflated expectations, and then eventually burnout. Burnout because it can't be the engine that drives your life. This is what once the authors concluded. People are often told to find their passion as though their passions and interests are preformed and simply must be discovered. This idea has hidden motivational implications. Urging people to find their passion will lead them to putting all of their eggs in one basket, but then to drop that basket when it becomes difficult to carry. And here's what the Bible says. It's going to get difficult to carry, and you will burn out. And what burnout is, is Jesus saying, look, you've been looking for your vocation to be your Savior. Transfer that weight to me. Serve me, and I'll empower you. Serve me in your vocation and together we'll make beauty in this world. Serve me in your vocation and your neighbor will be loved by you. Serve me in your vocation and together my kingdom will bear much fruit in this world. Let's pray. Father, as um, we would readily confess We've lost sight of the impact of the preeminent Christ in his kingdom on our lives. So send us out to do good. Equip us to love our neighbor. Help us to be obedient when asked to do things. This is hard for us. And to do so with joy as unto the Lord and with thanks. For we pray this, our Savior, in your glorious name. Amen.